I'm going to pray and ask that God might meet with us no matter where we are on our journey with him today. Dear God, I want to thank you for your gift of your son. And if, if this event is real, then it changes everything. It is a game changer and a deal breaker. And I pray that if uh, people here are just checking you out, that they might discover hope today. I pray, Father, that if those people are people here who are hurting, that you might draw alongside them. God, I pray that if people are here this morning who are lonely, may they know that your presence can be real. And God, if we've heard this story many times, I pray that you might pour over it us afresh, that it might seem life and joy and victory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the story of Easter goes something like this, and Lindy did it so well this morning. On the first day, according to John, as he wrote about this story, on the first day of the week, very early, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark. You see, the body had been taken down off the cross, and because it was a Sabbath day, they needed to do all of their preparations quickly before the day of rest or the the days of rest happened. And so they did. They wrapped the body, they placed it in a tomb, but there were still some details that needed sorting out. And so Mary came with some others on that first day of the week, very early in the morning. And when she got there, she saw that the, the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran off and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, Now, let's just pause there for a moment because Jesus doesn't have favorites. But we suggest from this that there was another person, maybe a younger person, maybe a relative of Jesus' family, a cousin, who was part of the mob, part of the disciples. And they kind of loved having him around, that he was the one that everyone kind of treated like a younger brother, the one that Jesus loved. They had affection for him. And so there was this kind of conversation in which Mary came to them and told them about it. And so what happened was she said these words. They've taken the master out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they've put him. You see, if there was one thing that was certain about that Easter morning in that time, in that place, in that world, is that no one was expecting somebody to rise from the dead. Why? If you're a Greco-Roman person, the idea of death, however vague it may have been, certainly didn't involve a human physical body. Why? Because the real self, the true self, was your spirit, your soul. This body, the human body, was prone to decay. Why would you want to get another one? (laughs) The best thing to do would be to liberate from it so that you could experience your real self, your true self, the soul, the spirit outside of it. No one in the Greco-Roman world would have been expecting some body to rise from the dead. Same with Jewish person. Jewish person, their best idea of the life to come, the age to come, is when God would come and become king and that he would raise all of the dead to life and, if you like, he would set into motion a new kingdom where the Jewish people would be a light to the nations and he would bring his restorative justice and his loving power and it would transform the world in one sweeping blow. There was certainly no idea in their mind that it would begin with one person, a person. And if the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world agreed upon one thing, it was simply this. Crucified people did not come back to life. That was the most sure thing ever. People who were crucified 
did not come back to life. So when they arrived on this day, on this particular morning, and she saw that a stone had been rolled away, the last thing in their thinking was that a body, somebody, was going to be raised to new life. In fact, this clash of stories has been echoing through the ages. If you like, there's been stories that have been propagated and perpetuated. Someone has said that human beings were narrative animals. The story that we exist in and believe in is the worldview by which we see everything. And if you like, at this time of year in our culture, we have two competing stories that collide with one another. Some people are away on Easter holidays right now, enjoying themselves, opening up eggs. And they have this strange word, Easter. I wonder what that means. Isn't that something about a Christian festival? You see, there's competing worldviews and stories. There's the one that we've inherited, if you like, in the last few hundred years, that all that there is, the real story, the true story, the one that is the main story, is everything that's been validated and verified by the, the scientific quest. This one, if you like, is the true story. Everything that is test-tubable is real and every other story is subservient to it. It's the dominant one. And what does it do with the Jesus story? Well, the Jesus story, if you like, is kind of the story of myth and legend and superstition. The one of faith and convictions, the inner world that shouldn't interact with the material world around about us. If you like, this story says of this story that this story is just a story. (laughs) It's the story that's been passed on, fabricated, a story retold in another story in another language, passed on, and if you like, it should begin with the storyline, once upon a time in a far, far away land, there lived a person called, this is the fabricated story. This is the one that was written many, many, even centuries afterwards. That's what this story would like to say of this story. But the truth is, even the Peter we just read about, in the year 50, just 20 years after, if you like, this event, this is what he writes just 10 years before he's crucified by Nero. He says, We've made known to you the power and appearing of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, you see. We were not following cleverly devised myths. Rather, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. We were there. We saw, we felt, we touched. This is good news. The second myth that this story would like to say of the Jesus story is that it's ahistorical. There's nothing else in the world of history and extra biblical language that would point to this story. But actually, the story, if you like, the historian of antiquities by the name of Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian, just in the end of first century into second century, writes this, these words. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. The third myth that this story would like to say about this story is that science, this story, has squashed all other stories, certainly the Jesus one. It's interesting. 
Francis Collins, the eminent biologist who has mapped the human genome, eminent scientist and follower of Jesus, says this, I have found that there is a wonderful harmony in the complementary truths of science and faith. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral or in the laboratory. I like that. You see, this story would like to have anyone else who believes in this story to think that it is lesser, that it is discarded, that it is outdated. But if you like... This says it's the dominant story that you must believe. C.S. Lewis, understanding the way this idea and thinking has rippled through the ages, in the 1900s, in his Chronicle of Narnia series, in one particular book called The Silver Chair, captures this idea most insightfully. You see, the children are in Underland and they've stumbled across the chamber of the Queen of Underland. And as they're standing in that firelit room, the Queen of Underland enters and she begins to engage them and talk to them. And as she's talking to them, she slowly moves around her chamber towards the fireplace. When she gets to the fireplace, she reaches for her mandolin and her magic dust. She throws it into the fire and she begins to strum and recite these words There is no overland. There is no Aslan. All there is is here and now. And the magical dust gets infiltrated into the children's minds and their thinking and they begin to parrot the words. It's true, there is no overland. There is no Aslan. All there is is here and now. There is no overland. There is no Aslan. All there is is here and now. That's what this story would like to say about this story if you like, the dominant one that squashes all others. But you see, that is not the only story. Philosopher Charles Taylor says, as much as we've tried for this story to squash this story, there's still an echo and a yearning in every heart and mind and soul of every man, woman and child that there is more. There is more to life than just the material. There's an echo in each one of us that haunts us still. And you will experience it and find it in two places of your existence. The first one is when our world celebrates death. Even for the most hardened unbelievers, when you get to a funeral, there's stories of the eternal golf course. (laughs) Or the, the pub where the beer just never runs out. Or we're just up there drinking with our mates. And he says that points to the reality that there is a, there's an eternity that echoes in the hearts of every man, woman and child to want more. And he said you'll experience the flat world of materialism in another profound way. And it has to do with how we order our time. He says we order our time in rhythms and cycles so that we can feel like there is a meaning and a drive and a purpose pushing forward. However... There are moments when time seems to stop and we have this overwhelming feeling of boredom or maybe the fear of boredom. You felt this too, didn't you? On Friday, there was only one football game in town. People were panicking because the shops were closed. 
And you know deep within yourself in those moments when you realize they had substandard content on the television that you thought, what will I do with myself now? And so you reached for your iOS device, did you not, to try and fill the gap. You see, there's an echoing in the human psyche and spirit that says no matter how strong and dominant this story is, it will not squash this one, that there is more to life than just a flat world and that God is on the move and that this story is not the only story. I was speaking to a friend who I took fishing many years ago. He said, Troy, I don't know if I believe this God stuff. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. As we're coming from the, back from that fishing experience, I said, mate, have you never had a religious experience in your entire life? To which he thought for a moment in the car. And he said, actually, maybe I have. You see, I remember a particular night on the Goulburn River where it was one of those warm, sort of still summer evenings He said, a mate and I were fishing in the stream, waist deep, casting. There was just a stillness on the water. And he said, there was this flock of geese that just flew around the mountainside and kind of descended down into the valley. And as we just stood there in wonder, we watched these geese simultaneously, these these ducks land on the water and just come to a stillness. He said, I looked at my mate. We didn't have to say anything, but it was one of those wow moments. Isn't there an echo? Isn't there a haunting? Isn't there a hunger for something more? You see, this story would like to say that this story has been squashed. But the writers of the Bible and John He says, actually, no, I beg to differ. You see, on that first morning of the first day of the week, I want to tell you about another story that trumps all stories. It is the story of all stories. And it continues on and he writes this. So Peter and the other disciple went to the tomb. Both of them ran together. The other disciple ran faster than Peter and got to the tomb first. He he stooped down and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Don't you love this? Only two guys could possibly do this, right? You know, we're going to have a competition on Easter Sunday morning as to who gets to the grave first and they actually wrote it in the account. This is funny, is it not? That the other one got there first and so he was looking in at this tomb that the stone had been rolled away. Then it says Simon Peter came up following him because he was second and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the napkin that had been around his head not lying there with the other cloths but folded up in a place by itself. You see, Peter would have said, you might have beaten me here but you were a scaredy cat. I went in first and they could have had that bickering all of the rest of their lives just between the two of them but the point that he's trying to make John saying here is that you need to look at the cloths you see if someone had have stolen the body they would have taken everything would they not if someone had have stolen the body or just wanted the body and not the cloths they would have unwrapped it all because that's what they did and place a napkin on top of the head which was a separate headpiece 
But he says that when they looked at the cloths, they weren't arranged in any haphazard fashion. It was as though all of the cloths that had wrapped up the body had simply collapsed, like air going out of a balloon, because the body, if you like, had been evaporated, taken, and that's how the cloths were lying. So much so that it says that when the other disciple who had arrived first at the tomb went into the tomb as well, and he saw, and he believed. You see, if there was a message that rang out on the day, is that no one was expecting somebody, but this somebody wasn't just anybody we're talking about. Do you know what I mean? You see, nobody was expecting somebody, but this body was just no ordinary anybody. This was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who'd come to this earth to set it into motion for you and I. Well, when they saw this, they returned home, but Mary... Mary remained, still not convinced that there was a body that had come back to life. And so she was tearfully crying. And it says, two angelic people stood before her and said, why are you crying? And she said this, they've taken away my master and I don't know where they've put him. And then it says at that moment, Jesus stood behind her and she thought he was the gardener. And so she turned to him and said, Sir, if you have carried him off somewhere, tell me where you've put him and I will take him and care for him. And then it's at that moment, Jesus speaks, Mary, and her eyes are opened. And she grabs hold of him and says, teacher, and clings as hard as she can. What kind of body is it that Jesus had that that she didn't quite recognize him. I don't know. It was kind of a heavenly glorified body with continuity on earth. It could vanish from grave clothes and it could speak and be clung onto. But whatever it was, it was a new body, a good body, a beginning body on the first day of the week. And Jesus said, don't cling to me, said Jesus. I've yet gone up to heaven, my father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. You see, the way that John, the writer, understands this is that this body wasn't just one indiscriminate body that had been raised to new life on this Easter Sunday morning. No, this individual body was the beginning body of the recreation of all things that God was finally putting wrongs to right, that this first recreated body was the beginning of a whole new movement of God on this earth that anyone, anyone, anyone is welcomed to join and it will not stop. Some years ago, I was over in Broome. We were there on a family holiday and we went to the pier and I looked down at the water below and I turned to some fishermen and I said, what is the deal with this pier? The water is like 30 metres below. And they said, you haven't been here before, have you? I said, no, why? She said, you don't understand the tides in Broome. They're like 9, 10, 11, 12 feet tides when the water comes in. There ain't no stopping it. I said, really? They said, yeah, you go try fishing out on the flats, you'll know. So I did. I got up one morning and I walked out there and I about a kilometre offshore where all the mud flats were, I thought, I'm just going to start fishing here. And I did. And there was a time in there where I thought, Psh, this tide stuff they're talking about doesn't make much sense to me because it seems pretty shallow. 
And as I was throwing my line in the water, all of a sudden there was that moment between the two where the water became still and slack and then it shifted and it shifted and it shifted. As I was casting, I was walking back because the water wasn't up to my ankles anymore. It was up to my knees. I was still casting. I wanted to catch fish. Um, and, and so the water was coming up faster and faster and I kept walking until there was a moment there I went, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it back to land here because this tide is just unrelenting. And so by the time I did make it back to land, I could see that the waters had entirely, entirely enveloped all of the land before it. And my friends... That is a picture, if you like, of what was happening on that first morning, the beginning morning on the eighth day of the new week. God, if you like, was bringing his kingdom to earth because he had become king. He had defeated death itself and he was bringing his power and his forgiveness and his unrelenting love to put this world to rights and he was inviting people, anyone, to place their faith in him and join him in this transforming movement that would turn this world upside down. And it did, and it does, and it is. You see, John finishes and he says this, These things are written so that you may believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is none other than Jesus, and that with this faith, you may have life in his name. Paul wrote it a different way. He said, if anyone places their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, there is a new creation. That creation that Jesus brought into being on that Easter Sunday morning will come alive in you. And it transforms people's lives and it forgives and washes them clean. It, it heals them of shame. It gives them a sense of purpose. And if you like, it's as though they are alive, alive for the first time. Old things have gone and look, God is making everything new. On this Easter Sunday morning, I want to ask you, do you know that truth? And that life for yourself. Gonok is going to come up and play for a moment. Because this message and this truth and this power has been transforming this world as we know it and human lives ever since. In AD 137, there was a gentleman who wrote to the emperor of the time and he described the transforming power of Jesus when people place their faith in him. And this is what he wrote. He said, It's the Christians, O Emperor, who have sought and found the truth, for they acknowledge God. They do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them and in this way make them their friends. It's become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as a real as over a real brother, for they do not call one another brothers after the flesh, 
but they know they are brothers in the spirit and in God. If they hear one of them is in prison or oppressed for the sake of Jesus, they take care of all his needs. If possible, they set him free. If anyone among them is poor or comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O Emperor, is the rule of life of those would-be Jesus followers, those Christians. This is their manner of life because of them good flows in the world. Yet they do not cry out in the ears of the masses for the good deeds they do. Rather, they take care that no one should notice them. They hide their giving like someone who conceals a treasure he has found. If you had have asked an early follower of Jesus, how do I know your Jesus has come back alive from the dead? They would simply answer this. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know he's come back alive? He's alive in me. And come and see how we live. Surely the kingdoms of the heavens have arrived in its upside down way and it's turning things right side up and it started in me and I just can't help by telling other people and living it out because God has become king. Death is defeated. New hope has come. It's alive in me. As we pause this morning and celebrate Easter Sunday morning, I wonder if the right thing for you to do here is to engage with God afresh. Maybe you're a long-in-the-tooth follower of Jesus and you need to have some fresh breath blown into you of his upside-downness. You need a fresh experience and encounter of his spirit. In a moment, I'm just going to create a space for you to ask him, breathe that new life wonder if you're here this morning and you feel alone or troubled you wonder well as it was shared this morning this Jesus, this one who came back to life is the king of all why don't you ask him again would you work in and through this situation and bring it before him that he might be king over that maybe you're here this morning This is the first time you've heard the good news message. And it is good. And you want to say, I want that goodness too. The way you enter in is by a settled conviction, believing, trusting obedience that agrees with Mary and the one Jesus loved. And Peter, let's come back to life. Jesus, come alive in me. So as God, I pray, pray. Why don't we pause and pray? Father, here in this place this morning, for those long in the tooth, but perhaps the story has become dusty. Would you breathe a new life into them, I pray. Holy Spirit, would you breathe freshness in that they might feel an infilling power of this and may it cause transformed living 
love and hope and joy and purpose. Because this story is the story above all stories. God, for those who are hurting and troubled, we bring this before you now. We ask that your fresh power might flow. Seeing comfort, transformation and change and answers to prayer. Jesus, for those who would open up their hearts to you and say, I will bend my knee and make you my king. Would you come and breathe your life? We pray. We pray. Happy